The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 3, The Classical World, Episode 72, Early Intermediate Period, Peru. is a country with a rich history and it has been well documented and categorised. The pre-Columbian period in South America is mainly the story of what happened in and around Peruvian lands, not because other lands in South America didn't matter, but because we have a much clearer picture of the heightened activity on this particular area of the west coast. We have spoken about the history of Peru during ancient times and mainly during the Volume 2 episode about the Chabin culture. We started out by talking about the Norticico civilization, who were around four to 5,000 years ago. This is the earliest known modern civilization to have been discovered in the Americas and they are well known for their pyramid construction which is highly intriguing when compared to Egyptian pyramid building that was going on at a similar time in a completely detached area of the world. They also developed irrigation skills which was the same thing that the contemporary cultures of the Near East had mastered particularly on the rivers of Mesopotamia. The Norte Chico are also called the Caral civilization after the main site of Caral. The Norte Chico civilization dispersed in the early 2nd millennium BCE. The next concentration of culture would come towards the end of the same millennium with the growth and success of the Chabin civilization with their ceremonial centre at Chabin de Huantar, which could have been one of the many significant settlements of this culture. The site of Chabin de Huantar was thought to contain a temple which would attract pilgrimages from the wider world that was influenced by the Chabin culture. We're not really sure how and why the Chabin culture declined, but dates around the 3rd century BCE seem realistic. It has been suggested that this be down to droughts and earthquakes, or at least that they may have been contributory factors. When describing the fortunes of the Chabin, we also mentioned a culture that emerged to their south called the Paracas culture, which appeared during the early 1st millennium BCE. The Paracas culture were skilled water irrigation experts and it's highly likely that the Paracas were influenced by the Chavin in this field of technology. The Paracas culture is well known for the great Paracas necropolis which contains many bodies wrapped in woven textiles. The bodies were mummified thanks to the dry conditions of the Pacific coast in this area of South America. The efforts invested in the quality and production of the textiles suggest that the bodies in this necropolis were ceremonially buried. The fact that the bodies number into the hundreds in itself is quite intriguing as it opens up debate for the social status of the individuals within the Paracas societies. With the preservation of the bodies being good in these lands, so too were the preservation of the woven cloths, and we have retrieved some impressively vibrantly coloured textiles. 
The rich colours were produced using plant and animal extract and the fibres were from the wool of the alpaca and similar animals. The fibres were woven to depict some very linear images and notable were the images of smiling cats that could be frequently identified. Feline images could also be found on the ceramics of the Paracas which sparks a fair degree of interest in why the Paracas regarded them so highly. We do know that ancient American cultures had a high regard for the jaguar, standing tall at a peak of the natural food chain. These felines were certainly not resembling of the ferocious jaguar though, so it is thought that the images may be more likely to represent the pampas cat, which is a wild cat that looks much more like a modern domestic cat, but is thought to have been a friend to the human by preying on the rodents and insects that in turn preyed on the crops of the farmers. The Nazca Culture The Paracas culture is believed to have been replaced by the Nazca culture and we can identify aspects and traditions that survived this transition. So it is fair to say that the Paracas evolved to become the Nazca but that a migration of foreign people called the Topara from the north into the lands of the Paracas was influential to this. The Nazca did live in settlements but they are described as villages. The Nazca unsurprisingly inherited the irrigation expertise of their predecessors and even took it to a stage further by developing methods by which the water channels could be dug under the ground. These underground aqueducts are called puquios and would protect the water from unwanted evaporation during its journey. There are some that claim that the Nazca Puquios were actually built a lot later after the arrival of the Spanish over a thousand years later. However, it may have suited the early Spanish settlers to lie about the origin of these Puquios in order to monopolise their wealth, as any water distributed by pre-Columbian structures was legally supposed to be shared with everyone. There was clearly irrigation expertise during the Nazca period, and evidence of successful settlements suggesting a fruitful farming society. The Cantayoc aqueducts are fed by spiral-shaped constructions on the surface of the land and are interesting to look at and impressive as well. These particular aqueducts can be found close to the Peruvian city of Nazca, which has taken its name directly from the historic culture. There is also the suggestion of a significant military presence among the Nazca with artistic depictions of headhunting, with severed heads being paraded and displayed. There is a suggestion that great military men could attain high social status as high as the priestly class. The warrior aristocrats may be found residing in great pyramid buildings and this would lead us on to the collective architectural and large-scale projects of the Nazca people which deserve further attention. One of the great ceremonial centres attributed to the Nazca is a site called Cahuachi. Cahuachi was originally thought to be a capital city but opinions have changed a bit and it is now thought to have been a centre for ceremony which is not unlike the purpose of the temple complex at Chabindawanta. The pyramid constructions were created using a mixture of earth and organic material which is referred to as adobe, a word taken from the Spanish language to describe this style of mixture which is likely to have been hardened by the hot baking sun.
no residential buildings have been detected. So the whole aspect of a constructed exclusively ceremonial centre is similar to the very ancient Near East site of Gobekli Tepe. Nazca Lines Close to Kahuachi, we've confined evidence of something that has amazed modern humankind. They are called Nazca Lines. The Nazca Lines are geoglyphs, and a geoglyph is a huge design made on the surface of the land by digging the earth or using rocks. The purpose of these geoglyphs is a mysterious thing. On the one hand, there are a series of straight lines which in some cases point towards sunset locations and alike, which is not surprising because we can see that humans were fascinated by the movements of the objects of the sky, seemingly everywhere in the world. It is only now that we can view the earth from the air like never before, and that we can truly appreciate the work of the Nazca, because it is only from the air that we can understand their true form. The Nazca were creating large-scale images of humans, animals and shapes on the landscape that any land-based outsider would not be able to detect. From the air, it's completely different. From the air, the astonishing creations of the Nazca can be seen in their full glory. There is nothing else quite like it, certainly not on this scale, anywhere else in the world. The geoglyphs of England are probably more modern, apart from the Uffington White Horse, which could date back as far as the Nazca geoglyphs. As for the Nazca geoglyphs, there are more than a dozen giant images of animals with further evidence of other geometric-shaped geoglyphs on the desert landscape. Mainly, the huge images are somewhat linear, without being totally made up from straight lines only. So the wings of birds have been recreated using a series of long straight lines, but the tail of the monkey is a long spiral and the body of the spider is circular. The long straight lines are likely to have been dug into the earth with the assistance of stakes and ropes in order to preserve their straightness. And their survival into the modern day is a reflection of the lack of wind and rain in the area, which could point us towards a reason for their existence. Water was an essential commodity in this area and ancient cultures of Peru needed to be somewhat ingenious to make the most of their water by utilising the impressive irrigation skills that we have already mentioned. The straight lines are not something to be overlooked with aspects of the geoglyph orientation either pointing towards or being perpendicular to sunrises and sunsets which indicate a form of celestial body worship. But other experts suggest that the geoglyphs in some cases are also pointing towards sources of water such as those that were carefully manipulated by the puquios, the stone spirals leading down into the underground irrigation channels. The main source of water being the underground aquifers whose existence would not have been obvious to people on the surface. Seeing is believing, so I would strongly encourage you to look up these Nazca geoglyphs online and see them for yourself. Nazca Pottery 
The same ability to create the vibrant colours found on woven fabrics can also be found on the ceramic items of this period and we can look for clues about the beliefs of the culture based on the designs on the pottery and how they relate to the stunning geoglyphs. There is clearly a regard for animals that is certainly not uncommon when we look back over the entire human history of art. There are ceramics that depict humans dressed as animals, which echoes back to this anthropomorphic fascination that humans have in mixing together aspects of humans and animals. And we see this throughout ancient human history, not least of all with the Ware Jaguar creations of the ancient Americans. We spoke of the colorization of Nazca artifacts, and experts have no doubt that the Nazca had developed a high degree of expertise in mixing colours. The patterns on the pottery are not surprising based on what we already know. The natural world was depicted, as was the abstract world with the mythical creatures. We can also see geometric shapes that are surely related to the geometric lines on the desert landscapes. The pottery also depicts the ritual displaying of severed heads on ropes, the headhunting culture that we spoke of earlier in the episode. We can see these heads being carried by a supernatural being in these depictions. Skulls have been found that support the headhunting depictions, with bored holes made where the rope could be threaded through. The designs were thorough in that they covered the ceramic pots and vessels, and they were vibrant and angular, giving them their own unique Nazca style. The discovery of human remains is no better illustrated than at the Chowchia Cemetery, which was a special and ceremonial burial place used for many centuries, and likely instigated during the Nazca period. Once again, as with the Nazca geoglyphs, the woven textiles and the coloured ceramics the arid climate of the area has preserved the site well. The bodies went through a considered mummification process and were dressed in cloths and were left in tombs to be discovered during the 20th century. The mummification attempts seem to echo from those attempted by the Egyptians with their pharaohs over a thousand years previous. Although we are comparing aspects of ancient American traditions to ancient Eurasian traditions quite a lot during this episode, we are only trying to reference them to provoke your own thoughts. I'm not suggesting that there was a cultural link between Eurasia and the Americas, because even if we believe that there could have been a migration of Chinese people to South America during ancient times, as been suggested by some historians, we must also be mindful of the fact that Chinese culture was not linked to the traditional cultures of the rest of Eurasia until after the mainstream emergence of the Silk Road. So, to compare the similarities of cultures of the ancient Near East to those of the ancient Americas, to me, seems like more of an autonomous response to human cognitive natures and environmental pressures rather than any migration of knowledge from one place to another. Having said that, this is only my opinion and we have to be open-minded to those who do speculate that there is a link of the cultures of mummification and pyramid building, for example. The Ancient Peruvian Coastline 
To summarise, what we already know about ancient Peruvian societies, we noted the emergence of the Chavin culture, which dominated the first millennium BCE, and its cultural extent, which reached along the coast as far north as the Ecuadorian lands and as far south as the Paracas Peninsula, where a distinct Paracas culture would emerge that was still closely linked to the Chavin culture. The Nazca civilization seemed like a natural progression of the Paracas and its centre of influence was in those more southerly lands around the Paracas Peninsula. So what was going on in the rest of the lands? A distinct culture has been identified as living in and around the modern capital city of Peru called Lima and conveniently for us they are referred to as the Lima culture. There are many similarities between the Lima culture and its geographical and chronological neighbours, so it is difficult to distinguish them. They certainly are unlikely to have identified themselves as we identify them now, so this resembles pre-civilised human life much more. Identifying the Lima culture is also difficult due to the obscurity of it because of a lack of information. It may be that further excavations provide more information in the future. The construction of the modern city on top of these lands is no help when it comes to unveiling the past. Some of the ancient temples have survived the modernisation of the city and can still be seen to this day. They are called Huacas, which is the Spanish interpretation of the ancient name. There are still indigenous people in Peru who have descended from pre-Columbian peoples and their religious style is one of animism which relates to the late Paleolithic human style of religion. And we can suggest that the animism and shamanism was attributable to these Lima Huaca temples too. One thing that has been discovered in both Nazca and Lima culture excavations is evidence of the preparation of plants for consumption for more medicinal purposes. But rather than a cure for ailments, it was more used to replace feelings and emotions with unnatural ones. For example, the consumption of cocoa leaves could aid with altitude sickness and feelings of hunger, but the continued consumption of cactus juices would induce hallucinations, which is comparable to drug abuse in the modern world. This can be traced back to the rituals of the site of Chabin de Huantar, a thousand years earlier, something we explored during Volume 2. The Lima culture is also thought to have been influenced by another culture called the Moche, which emerged at a similar time to the Lima culture in around 100 CE and in the lands of northern coastal Peru. The Moche culture. The Moche culture dominated the lands of northern coastal Peru for most of the first millennium and are characterised by their vibrant ceramics and temples which links it to its contemporary cultures to the south, the Lima and the Nazca. They mummified important individuals and sacrificed neighbouring enemies with a military attitude. With the lands of coastal Peru also being home for gold, we also recognise that the Moche were creating artefacts from metals too. The artwork associated with the metalwork and ceramics of the Moche give us a bit of an insight into their culture. The speculated area of influence for the Moche is larger than that of the Lima and the Nazca and so it is speculated that there was a mixture of cultures in this area. 
There has been a language discovered, but the depth of its understanding is shallow due to a lack of artefacts, and it is believed that various languages and dialects would have existed in and around the lands of influence of the Moche. So some of the ancient knowledge might actually be confused with other contemporary dialects, but linguists will be thrilled by the opportunities to learn more about South American languages presented by the evidence. The language is identified as the Mochica, and it survived up until the 20th century, which has helped us to trace it back to this ancient period. One of the most exciting things about the Moche culture are the temple sites that can still be visited to this day. They are the Huaca del Sol and the Huaca de la Luna, literally the Temple of the Sun and the Temple of the Moon. The Huaca del Sol can only be viewed from afar by visitors, but the Huaca de la Luna can be walked through where visitors can view the multicoloured friezes. The temples were constructed using adobe, which we described earlier in the episode. The two temples are around half a kilometre apart and the area was believed to be residential. So the two temples were part of an urban settlement or a mochi city, which has been called Cerro Blanco. Obviously, these are all Spanish names, so these would not have been the ancient local names. Decapitated skeletons excavated here point towards human sacrifices and the use of severed heads as trophies is something that we have already spoken of. The artwork at the temple is vibrant and we see images of warfare and defeated enemies that are not completely dissimilar to the early images discovered from ancient Egypt. So we can suppose that tribal relationships may have been similar to that of the Egyptians three millenniums earlier. In fact, the temples have been compared to other ancient pyramids of the world, and these ones were constructed using millions of bricks, so there must have been a cohesive society existing. A deity has been identified among the artwork and has been referred to as the decapitator, holding a decapitated head. We should also not be surprised to find that he was adorned with a jaguar headdress a typical powerful image of ancient Mesoamerica and South America. Sadly, the Huaca del Sol was looted by migrant Europeans during the second millennium and so many other artefacts and clues about the culture have been removed. But it does appear that important individuals would have been laid to rest in tombs within the temples. So once again, not unlike the purpose of Egyptian pyramids, but nonetheless still quite distinct. Metalworking was quite skilled in this area as evidenced by the gold, silver and copper artefacts. Turquoise was also a popular mineral used for jewellery. Of course we should not be in any way surprised to see the extensive production of ceramics which is a glorious attribute of the ancient Peruvians in any case. In all of the artistic productions, whether they be the portable art objects described or the parietal art of the friezes in the Huaca de la Luna, we identify a great many depictions of animals and anthropomorphic figures. The fact that we can determine that this area was an urban centre is also quite significant. It could be that tens of thousands of people lived in this city, so there would have been a need for significant agriculture and the associated irrigation necessary to sustain it. 
the considerable depictions of warfare point us towards a competitiveness between neighbouring tribes and settlements, so it is not too dissimilar to the scenarios of the earliest great urban societies of Mesopotamia with its ziggurat temple cities and its competition between settlements. So we must be careful to acknowledge this when reviewing the Mochi culture. It is highly likely that they did not view themselves as a single nation and it was much rather likely to be a competing group of settlements with a shared culture, somewhat typical of the semi-nomadic Celtic culture who would battle among themselves as much as with anybody else. Decline In the same way that geographical locations can be favourable for societies to emerge, flourish and progress, there can also be factors that can stifle it and even destroy it. We can suppose that the late Bronze Age collapse of the Eastern Mediterranean Sea in the late 2nd millennium BCE may have been triggered by a series of earthquakes. We have seen time and time again that unpredictable floods, droughts, insect infestations and subsequent plagues can cause devastation for urban societies of the Near East, the Indus Valley and China just to name a few. The Pacific Coastal Societies of South America were no different. In the same way that the fortunate natural aquifers were available for the ancient Peruvian societies to be able to build a foundation for their success, the unfortunate climatic character of the area would have its own way in time. A climatic anomaly of this part of the world has been called El Niño and it is caused by the warming of surface water on the adjacent Pacific Ocean which triggers a chain reaction of events that can ultimately cause devastation to human societies of coastal South America. It is unpredictable when it will happen. The warmer waters will result in increased rainfall on the coastal lands of South America. These unusual levels of precipitation will destroy crops resulting in widespread famine in large urban communities. And that's not to mention the fact that they may even be flooded out of their homes. It is speculated that it could have been such an event which triggered the decline of the Moche during the 7th century. It may have also been a time of decline for the Lima and Nazca cultures too. We cannot be completely sure to what extent that the demise of all of these cultures was down to climate change or the emergence of more powerful cultures that did actually take control of the lands of coastal Peru in the aftermath. It is thought that the Wari Empire emerged as the successor to the societies described during this episode and their policy would be to allow local leaders to retain a degree of autonomy despite being subjugated. So this points towards a less brutal conquest than might otherwise be assumed. So that very quickly brings the story of the cultures of Peru from its great ancient Chabin society described in Volume 2 right up to the emergence of the Wari Empire which we will go on to describe in Volume 4. When we look at all that we have studied in relation to the development of these ancient societies of Peru, it is a complete mystery why they are not as well known as the societies of Eurasia, considering how incredible some of the discoveries are, especially those incredible Nazca geoglyphs that humankind could never truly appreciate the marvel of 
until we took to the skies, over a millennium and a half after their creation. So now go and look at those Nazca geoglyphs. They're one of the one most wonderful things in the world um, from this period in time and, and probably from any period of time. So definitely go and look for them now on the web. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. And um, we, uh, we always say to you each week that if you want to uh, support the podcast, you can. If you're enjoying it and you'd like to support it, just simply go to the history of the world podcast.com website click on the plate on the patreon link i should say i beg your pardon click on the patreon link and go uh, go on to make a monthly donation for for as little as $1 per month when you sign up to make any kind of monthly donation you are automatically granted a place within the history of the world podcast Illuminati and those members um, who are uh, part of the History of the World podcast Illuminati qualify for rewards depending on how much they've contributed overall and um, we uh, we do have um, a one of our patrons um, one of our patrons I should say uh, Willie Moller um, who uh, is a is a member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati and is qualified to ask, ask a question of the of of myself the host. Uh, he's put my question is maybe too complex to be answered in a few minutes, but it fits into your storyline. And I love to think of how far distant nations are connected through their histories: Nordics, Ukrainians, and East Romans, for example. Germans define their origins based on an epos called uh, Nibelungen. And it is said to be a poem written in the 13th century. It tells us a story about the 5th century, referring to the Hunnic invasion. They are positively viewed. And Germanic tribes all over Europe, as far as uh, Iceland, I believe that's... um, The fascinating part is that we see similar stories in other regions like Scandinavia. But as far as Russia, uh, Chuvash people that believe to be Hunnic, uh, of Hunnic origin and tell a very similar story. These people seem to be a mix of Nordic Germanic tribes, Bulgars and Turks. Richard Wagner did a opera about it, so it's quite well known to Germans. We learnt it at school. It's not as historical fact, but it has a truth into it. The treasure is still searched for until this day. I'm wondering why these poems are not linked and used to explain other events like the downfall of the Roman Empire or King Arthur's uh, legend in France and England. I'm wondering why there is no common ground found or mentioned between the two two epos, um, especially as they play around the same time and the Saxons for sure had contact with uh, the Burgundians. I guess it's because it's really just a story or is it something more, something like the lost memory of what happened during the Roman downfall seen through Germanic and uh, Turkic eyes. Uh, so my question is, how much truth lies in the Nibelungen? This is an incredibly difficult question for me to answer, Willie. Um, I do believe that um, some of the stories that we that have come down to us in the modern age are often used um, to support... Uh, national identities of, of people and I, and I think um, when you look at um, epic poetry 
um, it's it really is used if it suits um, a particular nation to use it. So I think what I would always fall back on um, is what these epics are in history, generally speaking. And often we find that epics and poetry written about uh, mythology and um, certainly the origin of races and nations is the, is the fact that these things are held onto uh, vigorously uh, by people who want to establish a national identity, by people who want to make people feel as one and that their origin comes from one powerful source. So these epic poetries give you a sense of being someone important who belongs to a race of important people. So this uh, this particular German epic, the Nibelungenlied, was something that was always held onto hard by people of Germanic origin, and more so, especially when um, the N Napoleonic Wars were going on, for example, and, and, and German identity was very important in the face of French identity, and, and also um, going back, um, really, the, the whole Germanic um, identity was based upon... Um, you know, maybe an anti-Latin sentiment. So the fact that uh, the Germans really started out as a race identified by Julius Caesar as a group of tribes with with a with an origin um, who came from over the River Elba uh, and who were distinct from the Celtic people who came from the Roman side of the Elba. Um, well, I mean the, uh, the the River Rhine, not the River Elba. Sorry, the Rhine River. I think that whole um, that whole Latin Germanic, um, you know, antithesis, if you like, it, you know, it's hard to describe. Really, it's really just a lot like, of a, a, a lot of rivalry, a historical rivalry over the centuries, let's say, of of Latins and Germanics has, has really sort of um, come has come back up again. And, and I think the the Nibelungen lead is something that. Um, you know, helps German people to identify themselves as being as people of great importance, and that, and for that reason, you can also see that the the Huns, uh, you know, it would have been um, quite um, quite natural, perhaps, for Germanic people to consider the Huns to be a positive uh, influence in Europe because they would have battled against the Romans, who who in this during this era would have been considered the Latin. Uh, the Latin cultures that the Germanics uh, felt that they should prove themselves to be superior to. We can even actually see the the poem itself is um, it has been, was used by the Nazis during the twentieth century for their own propaganda as identifying their their race their their, their superiority. You know they hark back to these legends and and. This is not unusual for for many many different societies to to go back to legends that make themselves um, come across as as more you know, more powerful and and more legitimate um, because of it. When this works, it, it, it you know it invokes a great 
national identity amongst the people. The people feel like they have something that they can fight for, something that they believe in, and and uh, and an and an identity that they can stay loyal to. So this is the value of of these uh, legendary epics. So in answer to your question, Willie, I, I really don't have the answer at all. I'm not even close to knowing the answer. You probably even know more about the uh, Nibelungen lead than, than I do. However, having said that, I mean, the, the characters uh, within it are, um, you know, are legendary. We, we don't really know who they are. Um, we can't identify them with um, people who have... Um, emerge through excavations or, or other writings from other cultures so um, it's it's very very difficult for us to uh, to know if it's true or not so um, but certainly these things can can develop a life of their own so you, you can find that other epics and legends of of other races may may even latch on to uh, you know the the Nibelungen lead um, as you know, something that can aid them in in creating their own national identity. So, really, uh, rather disappointingly, I don't know, but it's very interesting to look at and speculate about. And I suppose all you've got for your for your, uh, for your money, Willie, is my opinion about these things, rather than um, you know something that that makes it any clearer. I'm, I'm unfortunately, um, I'm really sorry. Uh, I'm really sorry to do that, but at least you have brought it to the attention of all the history of the podcast, history of the world podcast listeners, and 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 perhaps um, you know inspired them to maybe research it a bit more if they are interested in German history. So to anyone out there that that also wants to wants me to sort of devote a couple of three minutes on on any given subject, all you have to do is sign up to be a patron of the podcast, and um, certainly. Um, you know, put a question over to me if you've donated ten dollars. I will talk on any given subject for a couple of three minutes, and and uh, you know, I'm not necessarily going to be able to give you all the answers that you're looking for, but certainly uh, you'll get some time and attention to anything that does intrigue you about history. You can ask, and I, and I will I will talk on that subject. So thank you so much, Willie Muller, and I hope you uh, I hope you do continue to enjoy researching that uh, subject. And maybe, uh, maybe in the future, you can tell me a thing or two about it that um, will educate me. I'm grateful to Willie for what he's done for the podcast so far, and uh, of course, he is a member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati, as we've mentioned. Uh, as is, uh, let's have a look. We've got um, Vincent De Carlo. He's now uh, also a member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati. Uh, Eric Van S. And uh, Nicholas Kerr, all now new members of the History of the World podcast Illuminati. Thank you so much for helping to support the podcast and keep it going. Of course, if, you, uh, if you're unable to make a financial contribution, which can be the case, uh, you can also um, do some wonderful things by rating and reviewing the podcast and uh, helping to push us up the charts of uh, whatever your chosen podcast platform is and uh, and attracting more listeners who, who might in turn then become members of the Illuminati themselves. Um, reviews. Um, Todd Hedrick, uh, Hendrickson from the USA has put um, a gem of a captivating podcast. Chris really delivers 
an entertaining and enlightening historical narrative of our history and uh, as we know it on this planet. Keep up the good work, highly recommended, uh, from Todd Woodstock, Illinois, USA. Thank you, Todd. It's a very, very special day for the History of the World podcast. And uh, it, it, was May, it was around about, it was almost a year ago now, I think it was around the 4th of June last year, that we made the, the big step to transfer the podcast from uh, audio boom over to anchor so the the distributor of the podcast is now anchor and that was around the 4th of june so it's not quite a year ago but since the move uh, today we can announce that there has been one million downloads of the history of the world podcast since that move um and um to be to be fair, it was probably around about two years that we were with Audio Boom, and, and we maybe had about seven hundred thousand downloads in the first two years. So it really just goes to show how much the the project is flourishing and becoming more popular. So um, I'd like to say a very heartfelt uh, thank you to each and every one of you who are listening to the podcast. Uh, that's incredible. I could never have imagined in my wildest dreams I would be talking about such numbers. One million downloads within a year. Um, you should all be very, very proud of what you've done for me and the podcast. It is due to my gratitude that I uh, that I unreservedly um, read out the the emails that have been sent to me by the listeners and I, and I make no apology for doing that you've been kind enough to write in and and I'm always more than grateful uh to, and and willing to read them out so that you get your you get your time in the spotlight uh, John Reyes has written in and put hi Chris I'm from northwest Indiana and I wanted to say I absolutely love your podcast it's the first one I started listening to actually on Spotify I started back in February and listened to it at work I am starting your two-part summary of Rome and am a little sad because I realise I'm catching up to the present podcasting schedule. My favourite episodes, I think, were about Phoenicia, Volume 2, and Greek colonisation in Volume 3. It was nice seeing a picture of the man behind the voice finally. Keep up the amazing work, and when I can, I will surely donate to the podcast. John, uh, just the fact that you, you're listening to the podcast and and you've taken the time to written in uh, is, is enough to is enough to um, generate some gratitude from me. So thank you so much, and I'm glad you're enjoying it. And uh, yes, you and many others have, have caught up with the podcast. You said you'll feel a bit lost when you get to the to the modern age, but I thought, you know, once a week, I've, you know, it's, I can't really push it out any harder than that, I'll tell you. Um, Sarah Mayer has written in and put, Hi Chris, thanks for your wonderful podcast. I am a recently retired teacher with a passion for learning about human evolution and prehistory. I got a degree in uh, anthropology with a minor in education in 1982. However, the course of my life was directed towards teaching instead of an anticipated career in physical anthropology. Now retired, my interest in anthropology and history has been rekindled. I've been trying to catch up on the latest findings and theories. Wow. A lot has happened since Lucy was found. She was the reason I changed my major to anthropology. I've I've been mostly watching videos on YouTube. Though fascinating, the ones with reputable sources are often vague and too generalised. The ones from universities are often too gen, uh, genre, uh, genre, 
specific and technical. Sorry, I'm trying to read it out at speed. I beg your pardon. Consequently, I found that there, to, uh, I found there to be a lot of gaps and often confusing. I discovered your podcast on Spotify by accident and have thoroughly enjoyed it. I just listened to Volume One, Episode Eleven. I find your presentation to be concise, chronologically re- uh, relevant and easy to listen to. You've incorporated many aspects of paleoanthropology and other related disciplines and new technologies into an understandable story of becoming human. You've filled in many gaps of recent findings and how they fit into our understanding today. Just wanted to recognise and thank you. I'll, I will look forward to listening to Volume 2. You're right, Sarah. That's that's the biggest thing about... And, and Volume 1 is, is one of those volumes and I've, I've said it before it the information will become dated uh, very quickly because it's one of those fields of study that is constantly developing so certainly since lucy was found in the 1970s such a lot has been discovered and 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 it's like finding pieces of the jigsaw stuffed down the back of the sofa and and trying to sort of find out where they actually go um we will undoubtedly uh, as each year passes find out more uh, find more pieces of these of the jigsaw puzzle thank you sarah um got a great email in from uh emily alley chris uh, hi chris i adore the podcast i've been listening all week while painting and it's so engaging and educational i wonder what pa- what painting you've been doing decorating or um or 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 actually painting pictures I did have a question about one of your early episodes where you mentioned Venus figurines. What do you think of the idea that they're self-portraits? I imagine that if they were truly sexual, then they were, then you'd see more male statues. But don't these tend to only be women? I could imagine a scenario where a young, heavily pregnant woman living 20,000 years ago found herself unable to hunt or forage, so she's left behind in a camp of some sort. Then she finds an interesting rock and having nothing else to do, starts carving what she sees in front of her, which is why the statues have a forced perspective. The feet are small. And you have the exaggerated breasts and hips, which to me suggest a young woman meditating on the odd shape of her body going through pregnancy. Most interesting, though, is the lack of a face, which is especially odd given the exaggerated detail of the hair in a figure like the Venus of Willendorf. It is though. Uh, it's as though this uh, maybe this young woman's friends did her hair for her, and maybe she found it especially beautiful. She would reach up and carve the hair the way it felt, but wouldn't think about her face without a mirror in front of her. I think there's something beautiful in imagining that the statues tell us about how prehistoric women saw themselves. There's no reason the art could have only been created by men. I uh, hope you're well, Emily. Uh, Emily, I agree totally completely agree there's no reason why you that is wrong what you've speculated and i think um these speculations are incredibly important to um to encourage other people to look at it from a different perspective um of course there are very many venus figurines that can be compared to each other from different cultures so so it's probably worth looking at them all and uh, i think it's um, often convenient for historians to just pack it off as as a a fertility cult you know it might it might completely be wrong so uh, but we we don't know and that's the beauty of it uh quinn stearns has written in and, and put hello chris my name is quinn and i live in the us arizona i wanted to reach out and tell you how much i've been enjoying the podcast i recently found an internet uh, an interest in science history podcasts after finishing a bbc podcast i went 
looking for something new. I went through many different podcast channels and I did not enjoy uh, before finding yours on Spotify. I'm only on episode 10, but so far I love it. Thank you for explaining things so clearly. I'm 24 and did not formally study anything history related in college, yet this is still very easy for me to keep up with while also being very in-depth. Thanks again. Looking forward to listening to the next episode on my drive to work tomorrow. And uh, Emma Irvin has written in and put, uh, I started listening to the History of the World podcast when my daughter was born eight months ago and I'm finally up to date. I will listen to a few episodes a night during her wake-ups and feeds. It's saving my sanity being able to listen to something so interesting. Thank you for all your hard work, Emma the Wirral. Uh, thank you ever so much, Emma. What a lovely email to round off on. Um, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much uh, for all of your time and effort and uh, for writing in it. It really does mean a lot. Well, that's all for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Next week, we're off to Mexico for a date with the Zapotec civilization. So until then, we'll see you next week. Don't forget to be good. Come to the History of the World Podcast.com and join all the other hot welders on our wide range of social media. Why not support the podcast by clicking the Patreon link or buying me a book and becoming a lifelong member of the History of the World Podcast Illuminati? Drop me a line at History of the World Podcast at mail.com and let me know what you thought of this week's episode. See you next time.